Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damien Sassauer, and today we are joined by Ms. Kate Ambrose, Chief Executive Officer of the Global Private Capital Association. For those of you, this is formerly the Emerging Market Private Equity Association, a, uh, a non-for-profit that I'm sure we've all had some engagement with over the course of our careers. Kate, a real privilege to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much, Damien, for, for having me on the show. Well, look, I mean, Kate, before we dig in, perhaps you can provide our audience with a bit of background on the role played by GPCA and its you know, former self in facilitating, facilitating private investments across the EM landscape. Great. Um, well, the organization was, form- was initially founded, as you pointed out, as the Emerging Markets Private Equity Association, or MPM. That was um, initiated by a group of the, the first LPs in, in global private equity funds um, from the IFC. So the IFC of the World Bank really played a critical role. It was headquartered in Washington, D.C. And for um, about 15 years, it was an incredibly useful one-stop shop for U.S. institutional investors and others that were looking for data, fund manager introductions, and just insights on on opportunities across emerging markets. Um, I joined the organization in October of 2019. And at that point, I really saw the need and the opportunity to reposition the organization for the future and think in a different way. And the baseline of that for me was I wasn't going to run anything called emerging markets because to my mind, and apologies to your, you know, I know this is what your your podcast is titled. No around. apologies <laughs> necessary. It's, um, I believe it's the bastard stepchild of financial markets right now. Don't you know that, Kate? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's incredibly outdated terminology. It's really, I know the perception is it's very difficult to replace. And there are, there's a certain, you know, mindset around how to think about um, investing globally. But the fact is, we're talking about 88% of the world's population, an enormous, you know, percentage of the opportunity to invest globally. And um, it's just, it's the reduction, it's just too much of a reduction and a simplification that is no longer helpful. So we repositioned the organization to rename as the Global Private Capital Association. And the geographies that we cover are Asia, Latin America, Africa, Central and Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. But the way investors think about opportunity today is around thematic investing. Where is the best opportunity to put money to work in climate investing? Where is the best technological innovation? Where are the best infrastructure opportunities? And then within those themes, where are the valuations most attractive? And where are the best fund managers, of course? You know, who are you giving money to? And this is all in the context of private equity and venture capital. I want to make that distinction as well. We're not talking about uh, public markets or sovereign debt. We're talking about investing with private equity, venture, private credit, infrastructure, real estate, those types of investors. Well, Kate, I mean, you were just in Asia. Um, a few weeks ago, you were in Singapore, you were meeting with investors. You know, so tell me what's going on on the ground in Asia? You know, what sectors are most attractive to Asian private equity investors? And, and you know, really, you know, how are private equity investors approaching the Asian region and China in particular? Well, it's a moment of extraordinary global volatility, um, as we all know. Um, And there's been 
a lot of upheaval in the relationship between China and the U.S. in particular, and um, a lot of volatility there. So it's obviously a time that um, U.S. investors and others are are thinking about China from a new perspective. I can tell you um, our organization collects proprietary data on fundraising investments and exits, so we are able to see the trend. And for the first quarter of this year, investment in China was down, but China investment, private capital investment in Southeast Asia and India was actually up pretty significantly. And in Singapore in particular, um, very dynamic environment. There's been um, an enormous burgeoning of um, venture and startup investing headquartered out of Singapore, but across Southeast Asia, um, private equity investments. Uh, so Singapore is also... Um, I, I hesitate to use the word benefiting because there's sensitivity there, but Hong Kong has been suffering from the draconian shutdown under, under the COVID restrictions by the Hong Kong and then the Chinese government. So China and Hong Kong have been sort of less um, active in terms of hosting meetings or having investors being able to travel in and out. And that's meant that a lot of global firms and some Hong Kong firms have been relocating to Singapore. I can tell you that um, hotels are packed um, the conference calendar is overwhelming. Overwhelming. I'm talking to fund-to-fund managers, private equity managers, and venture managers that are all opening offices in Singapore. And of course, Singapore itself has done an amazing job through the monetary authority of um, pulling investment in. The Singapore government has really positioned itself to be a magnet for global financial um, markets and, and private capital investing. In fact, our local office in Singapore, GPCA's local office, has a full-time staff of four, and that's co-funded by the government there. Interesting. Well, I mean, look, you know, the reality is, I mean, that, that, that dovetails with everything we're seeing about, you know, investors, you know, diversifying their supply chains, you know, throughout the Asian region, throughout the block, simply because you're absolutely right, you know, the way things are moving in China you know, it's, 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 it's just a, as a fiduciary, it's a, it's, it's, it's an approach that you can actually explain to your shareholders a little bit more effectively. You know, for me, it's, it's obviously the war in Ukraine, right? And obviously this has affected public markets and financial markets and considerably, right? And commodity markets. I mean, you name it, you know, what's the impact been on private equity investments across, I know you hate the word emerging markets, but I'm going to say it anyway, you know, the emerging market landscape. And I guess more broadly speaking, are there certain regions, for example, those that are geographically more closer to the conflict, like Central and Eastern Europe, that are more or less at risk? Which markets, in your opinion, are proving most resilient? Yeah, you know, Damien, I'm actually going to um, circle back to the conversation on Asia for a moment, because it's very easy to imagine that there's just been a, a draw, you know, a hollowing out in China. And in fact, we still see successful new fundraises and investments happening in the Chinese market. I think the way investors are thinking about it is that they just, you know, commitments to new fund managers, you know, are sort of on pause. But Sequoia just announced, um, I'm trying to remember what the target was, but a very large fund that they're out to raise for, for the Chinese market. And the thing is, in China today, you want to be seen as being aligned with the government. They, you know, the, there's been a shift away from sort of consumer investing more towards um, robotics, electric vehicles, which is an area where China leads globally, et cetera, uh, batteries. So uh, I would say China is not off the table, but there's definitely a rethink there. And then India and Southeast Asia are two of the regions where there's um, an enormous amount of focus. I think um, there's been kind of this simplistic mindset, which is, okay, China was a great opportunity because it's a huge population with you know, um, 1.3, 1.4 billion population. 
oh, where else is there, you know, a scale opportunity to put money to work and the attention is shifted towards India. In reality, those two countries share almost nothing in common. They couldn't be more different in terms of the risks and the opportunities. But India is a great opportunity. And um, both in the startup landscape, uh, we see investment growing, you know, dramatically in that market. There was a huge um, telecoms platform, Geo, uh, Geo, uh, J-I-O in, in India, which raised $20 billion in the space of about two weeks from a, a parade of global investors from KKR, General Atlantic, Canadian pension plans, and others going into the Indian market. And that Geo platform has allowed um, very cheap internet access um, and telecoms you know, access across India, which is driving the startup, uh, startup environment there and just greater access to tech, et cetera. So, um, so India is definitely a market that is, that is moving um, very quickly and where we see increased investor interest. And then I would say, you know, globally, coming back to thematic versus, uh, versus geographic investing, it comes down to, again, where are the best climate opportunities? That's a huge area of focus for, for investors internationally. And um, everything related to technology, digitalization, and innovation. Um, so those are two themes and happy to drill down a little bit more into where we see some of the specific opportunities. Well, two things I'd want to ask you. First of all, you know, you mentioned China and investing alongside the government in Beijing as being, you know, the preferred way of doing that. Although I'd argue on the other side of that, you know, there are tremendous concerns that I hear from my side regarding rule of law and property rights when investing in strategic sectors like robotics within China. So, you know, I, I know you're probably not positioned to discuss that in any great length, but Certainly that is, you know, a concern for investors that I speak with. I mean, but just going to your point on ESG and on clean energy and climate, you know, how has the war in Ukraine and what's been going on with oil prices? I mean, obviously oil prices have come in quite considerably in recent sessions, but nevertheless, you know, you know, energy prices are, and the supply shortage therein, you know, do you see sort of a resurgence of interest in, you know, more classic uh, fossil fuels and, and, and development of, you know, refiners and hydrocarbons, or is it really all about, you know, clean energy and climate? Yeah. You know, there's been such an important shift away from traditional fossil fuels in the private um, capital landscape. Um, gas, I would make the distinctions, you know, is there's been a, a, a debate that's been going on for some time, which has only been complicated by the energy shortages as a result of the war in Ukraine around whether, gas should be included in private equity portfolios as a transition energy. And so there are a lot of um, sort of ESG focused institutional investors and others or Europeans in particular that have said, we're not going to back any funds that have, say, gas in the portfolio. And the reality is you can't leapfrog um, from places like India and China where coal is being burned directly to full renewables. There are topographies in places like Bangladesh and other parts of the world where you need to have that, that transition. So gas has continued to be you know, a sector where you see um, fund managers investing, but I think the growth in renewables is extraordinary. And again, private equity players have a key role to play there. Um, Actis is a global uh, energy and infrastructure investor. It's on our board of directors. They recently sold several large assets in, um, in Mexico and have been selling assets to Shell and others that are looking to build out their renewable um, capacity. You know, it's, it's um, easier for a traditional energy uh, company like Shell or, or others to acquire assets that have been built 
Greenfield by um, or acquired and built up by uh, a private equity investor. So I would say if I had to put my finger on the one trend that is just a massive, you know, multi-trillion dollar opportunity for private capital in the decades and years to come, it would definitely be climate investing. And there are a lot of different opportunities there. It's not only energy, it also includes, you know, food and agriculture, uh, circular economy, um, you know, enormous opportunities in clean tech and, and on and on. Well, you know, I mean, you know, now you're hitting on, you know, the various different kind of subsectors within private equity. And it's not just private equity in the classic sense. You've got private credit, you've got infrastructure, you mentioned ESG. I mean, there's so many different, you know, areas of the capital stack that investors can participate in from a private uh, practitioner's perspective. Where's the greatest interest you're seeing right now? You know, what, I guess, sub asset classes within the private equity space are, are really most attractive and why? Yeah, well, I would, um, I'll come back, I'm going to come to the asset classes. I think technology, digitalization, and innovation is the driver of growth. If you think back um, to a period of time when I'm, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see them, I'm using air quotes for emerging markets as I use that <laughs> phrase. Um, and it was all about, you know, GDP growth, larger populations, increasing consumption, sort of like this mentality of a rising tide lifts all boats. That, that scenario really didn't play out. What has been replaced by is the fact that there's an opportunity to leapfrog um, tech in technology and um, all of the incredible growth opportunity from financial services, fintech, just expansion in internet access, um, consumption, um, logistics, and, um, and you know, uh, companies like Grab, which are um, super apps. We've seen the super app platform model come out of China and go into other parts of the world where you see everything from delivery to fintech, you know, under one, under one platform. So um, I think technology, digitalization and innovation is, is a huge driver. And, you know, I'm just going to come back to um, your question on Central and Eastern Europe. Of course, it's a dramatic situation right now as a result of the war in Ukraine. Um, there's had to be a, a you know, a a pivot and, and most businesses are really, um, you know, just struggling with the, with the geopolitical stress. But leading up to the war in Ukraine, Central and Eastern Europe had actually had a huge growth spike in innovation and tech startups and some really successful exits. There's tremendous tech talent in that part of the world. Just one I would mention is UiPath, which is a um, robotics uh, software platform, process automation set, uh, platform which uh, one of our member firms, Early Bird, invested in 2015. They put about uh, the first you know, few million dollars into that. And there was a, a very large IPO, about a $35 billion IPO last year. And that company is opening offices around the world and, and serving clients in the US and developed markets. So I think you know, one of the things that always frustrates me about the perception of, um, you know, investing beyond U.S. borders is that all innovation comes from the U.S. And the reality is there are extraordinary um, business models, uh, innovations emerging around the world. And the U.S. has no, um, you know, no lockdown on, on where technology and innovation, um, you know, might, and great investment opportunities might be, might be developing. Kate, I mean, you have more than two decades of experience in emerging market private equity. And I know I'm going to use the inverted air commas as well for emerging markets. But, you know, for me, you know, what, you know, 
the size of the of the industry, right? I mean, clearly it's gone through some massive changes just in the last, forget about the last three to five years, the last 10 years, you know, I mean, we can go back and look at a barrage and some of the things that happened in the wake of the uh, commodity super cycle. But for me, you know, how big is the space today? How many, I mean, are fund managers, are you seeing new fund launches? Um, you know, are, 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 are the size of the funds themselves um, of scale, of scope, of size? Like what's the, you know, what, what's your sense of the industry itself? Is it healthy? Is it growing? Is it robust? Um, well, like everything else in the rest of the world, it's evolving. Um, so, you know, nothing is static. And I think um, some of the trends that you see in globally in terms of concentration of relationships among fund managers, um, you know, is something that we definitely see internationally as well. Um, there are a set of champions in different geographies that have done like, for example, DPI in Africa raised over a billion dollars for their last fund in, in Africa last year. And, you know, Africa is a tough geography these days, but for the right manager that's demonstrated that they have a track record of um, raising, investing, and returning capital to, to, their, to their LPs, you know, there, there's always going to be an opportunity. Um, I would say, again, there's a shift in terms of the makeup of the industry and how um, those fund managers are thinking about putting money to work. Whereas it used to be more geographically focused, like say, a pan-Latin American um, fund investing uh, across a wide array of sectors with a, a just a bit uh, sort of a more macro bet. Now there's much more sectorial focus. Again, thinking about um, a clean energy fund or consumer, you know, something that's consumer focused. El Caterton is an example of that very active in Latin America and other parts of the world. So there's much, much more targeted and specific approach. And then again, you see this in private equity globally as well bringing in people with operational expertise to really build the capacity into those companies and that know an industry well and, and to build on that. So um, I think there's, you know, um, still uh, hundreds of billions of dollars being raised, you know, for the industry. And then the other point that I would make is it's not only about uh, private equity and venture capital fund managers. You have Canadian pension plans, sovereign wealth funds, and increasingly global family offices from across these geographies co-investing and direct investing alongside the private equity and venture managers. So um, really the scale of capital that's available to invest in these markets has never been greater. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I mean, it's really quite unbelievable. I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, a lot of these private investors have become so sophisticated in their own right, they're able to manage those investments and, and maintain them. I mean, and, and, and go direct. I mean, I think it's amazing. I mean, look, we're getting late on time, Kate, but I have to ask you this question. You know, you just mentioned it, you alluded to it, you know, I don't want to say direct investing, but, you know, just, you know, sort of a, 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 a manage the account type of, of structure, you know, institutional investors kind of going direct, you know, what, what are you seeing around those investments for? So what I'm asking really is what tools or strategies can those types of investors employ to really Im improve their risk adjusted returns? We know about the volatility from EM currencies, or really, quite frankly, it doesn't need to be an emerging market currency anymore. It could be the yen or euro, right? So, you know, how are these fund managers, you know, you know, improving their risk-adjusted return, you know, you know, avoiding drawdowns, you know, that like we've seen in the past. And I, I guess, do you find investors more or less willing to use, you know, options or other hedge instruments in order to sort of, you know, just kind of create a smoother return profile over time? Is that something you're seeing or is it too early for that? 
Well, what you're alluding to is currency risk. And of course, that has been, you know, the single greatest factor that's um, affected, um, you know, risk, as you say, returns out of uh, out of global markets is is when you facing a you, you see the AI in Brazil go from 1.6 to 5 is, you know, 2014 is pretty hard to make that up, you know, in on, on investment returns. Um, unfortunately, hedging, you know, you do see some of that, but I think much more it's it's around sectors that will be, um, you know, less affected by um, by a currency depreciation. Obviously, yep. you know, dollar, you know, dollar. Look, looking through to the underlying investment and their exactly. cash flows and their, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I'm with you. I'm with and you. And then again, on the tech side, you know, that's a place where, um, you know, if you're seeing, if you're going to have the kind of outsized IPOs that are, you know, um, you know, triple digit returns or something like that, that offsets the, the currency. So that's something that really needs to be considered, you know, going in. And the other thing I would just highlight in there, we're talking about institutional investors going direct and the rest of it, you know, th- there is so much more money that is looking out for the long term. And maybe this is different from somehow some of your, you know, typical listeners listeners think about the opportunity globally. The investors we represent are thinking in decades to come. Mm-hmm. And that wall of trillions of dollars of investable capital, um, you know, it, it can't all be put to work today and then what, you know, reinvested a year from now or three months from now. Canadian pension plans, sovereign funds are looking to lock money up and thinking about risk very differently when they do so in, in you know, thinking about decades and decades. It's driving infrastructure investment. It's certainly driving climate investment. And it's, and it's also driving this focus on ESG. ESG is not, you know, a do-gooder, you know, or a, you know, lesson. You know, we're looking to trade off returns for, um, you know, for uh, social impact. It's really thinking about ESG is just the lens of thinking about risk and what the world is going to look like 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now. Um, if you're investing in, um, you know, a dirty energy today, how are you going to ultimately exit that? Who are you going to sell that to? You know, I, this was expressed to me by a um, senior investor at a, at a Canadian pension plan a year ago, and it really stuck with me is anything that you're investing in today, you need to think about who you're going to sell that to and, you know, what market perception is going to be around whether it's, you know, dirty energy or, um, you know, dirty money. I mean, it's just in our universe, ESG is absolutely primary to um, investing for the long term. Well, I wasn't going to ask you about exit strategies, Kate, so we'll just go, we we won't avoid it, but you did make a really interesting point. I just want to highlight for our audience, you know, the currency impact on long-term investing globally and other currencies and other currency markets for that matter, um, it it swings both ways, right? Because you mentioned earlier in Central and Eastern Europe, you've got a vibrant service sector in the the technology space and you're accessing that labor pool at a much lower cost, right? So there's a lot of advantages that go hand in hand with cross-border investing. It's not just about, you know, the currency risk itself. It's about accessing, you know, more efficient uh, pools of capital or, or labor, quite frankly, at, at, at more efficient levels. But we can talk about that at a later date. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to share your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always-committed EM enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and enjoy the summer. Thank you so much.